uh, welcome everybody. Uh, it's nice to see so many people here uh, for this event. I want to go through a few um, housekeeping details, um, if we could please, uh, before things kick off. First of all, there's no, uh, there's no plans for any fire test today, so if you hear the bells go off, then uh, when we really do have a fire, and uh, you should make your way out of the building. Uh, there's exit points uh, at the back um, of um, each floor, uh, both straight out and to the left and to the right, and the uh, point for uh, people to collect is actually the front car park. Um, so if the bells go off, please make your way out of the building. Can I ask everybody to make sure that mobile phones are switched off? Be grateful if you could do that. And um, as you know, uh, part of the session today is going to involve, give you the opportunity for questions. And because this event is recorded live and going out on Coolin FM, it's really important when you ask questions that you actually use the microphones. So there will be two people uh, on each side downstairs uh, who will have microphones. And if you please request a microphone, and if you hold up your hand, if you're going to ask a question, and the microphone will be passed to you. And please, if you hold the microphone fairly close, uh, that'll help uh, in terms of clarity. Um, and um, that's it. Uh, so um, that's the housekeeping, and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy this interesting event. Thank you. Falchi, on behalf of Highland Council, can I take this opportunity to welcome you to the Arras Centre and to thank you for taking the time to come. And I hope that you've come today armed with many questions. Can I also give a, first, a warm welcome to the First Minister and his Cabinet colleagues. I'm delighted that they have come to the Isle of Skye to hold one of their summer Cabinet meetings. I'm very pleased that they have had the opportunity to meet with a wide range of local community representatives and organizations yesterday, and will also be able to meet with you after this event. I very much believe that bringing government closer to the communities they serve helps politicians understand the needs and aspirations of, lo of local communities. And it's also an excellent way for local communities to see and engage with their government face to face. I very much hope that today's question and answer session with the Scottish Government will be a helpful way in which you have the opportunity to raise the issues that affect your community and our country. And it now therefore gives me great pleasure to introduce the Cabinet Secretary for Education and Lifelong Learning, Mike Russell. Thank you very much, Drew, and, and thank you for your welcome, and thank you to the Highland Council for uh, the hospitality that's been shown to the Cabinet on our, our visit. Um, it's in a very appropriate place for us to come home, Aros, that word meaning home, of course, somewhere where I think many of us are, have been before, but it has changed uh, immeasurably over the years. Now it has 
over 260,000 visitors. It runs the Skydance Company, which we had the pleasure of seeing last night at the reception. And in this auditorium, named after the great Sorny McLean, there is so much activity that takes place week in, week out, year in, year out. So we're very delighted to be here, and here also, I think, as part of the Sky Book Festival. Speaking as a, a writer, I'm always delighted when there are events to sell books. So it's great to be here and great to have the opportunity uh, that we now have to engage in uh, a question and answer session. These sessions are held as part of the Scottish Cabinet's visit uh, in every place that we go to. And we've developed a, what I think is a successful routine. I hope it is, because we're going to try it again today. In a moment, I'm going to welcome the First Minister. And uh, then I'm going to, once the First Minister has spoken, uh, come down into the hall. We have two microphones, and we're going to ask people to ask questions. Um, we'll take them in batches of three questions at a time. If we have brief questions and brief answers, then we'll get through a great deal in the next hour and a half. But uh, the quality of this will depend not just on my colleagues, but on what you want to ask and the way in which you ask it. And I hope we can enter into that uh, constructive and genuine dialogue that allows us to go away thinking that we've learned things and hoping that we've uh, made you understand a little bit more of what is taking place in our portfolios. Now, we have today a, a range, a galaxy of talent on the platform, starting at the far end there with the Lord Advocate, Frank Mulholland, Angela Constance, the Minister for Youth Employment, Alec Neil, the Cabinet Secretary for Infrastructure, Nicholas Sturgeon, Deputy First Minister and Cabinet Secretary for uh, Health and the City Strategy, John Swinney, Cabinet Secretary for Enterprise uh, uh, and Sustainable Growth, Kenny McCaskill, the Cabinet Secretary for Justice, and Stuart Stevenson, the Minister for Environment and Climate Change. And I'm Mike Russell, and I'm the Cabinet Secretary for Education and Lifelong Learning. Uh, but of course, the person who has most to tell you and most to contribute is the First Minister. So I have great pleasure in inviting Alex Salmond, the First Minister of Scotland, to address you now. Well, Fesker ma agas falcha. Now, for those of you who have the, uh, the Gaelic, you know that means good afternoon uh, and welcome. Uh, for those of you who don't have the Gaelic, what it means is I speak to you not as First Minister of Scotland, but as Honorary President of Sconcer Golf Club, and I fully expect to exercise my playing rights later on this afternoon. Uh, the Gaelic has always been such an evocative uh, language, crystallizing meanings into a few words. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're delighted to be back here in Sky. This is the, the, the this is not the first cabinet meeting around Scotland. We've been doing that since uh, 2007, but it's the first time we've come anywhere twice. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, I don't have to tell people from Sky why Sky should be the first place that we've come to twice in the, the tour, the cabinet summer tours around Scotland. Now, the idea of the <clears throat> summer tours is to, to demonstrate that the, uh, the cabinet, the government, indeed the parliament, is not a parliament for Edinburgh, it's not a cabinet for Edinburgh or a government for Edinburgh, it's a, a government for the, the whole of the country and therefore the, the summer's tours when we give people the opportunity to ask the, my cabinet colleagues uh, uh, pointed questions uh, in their own localities uh, is very much part of demonstrating that process. <clears throat> you may wonder why we need so many government ministers uh, at these meetings. It's a case of overpersoning of the uh, of the cabinet. Well, actually, of course, the the format is very simple, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Michael will be asking you to ask questions. If you ask uh, difficult questions, then of course my cabinet colleagues are here to answer. If you ask less than difficult questions, then I'll accept full responsibility and answer myself. 
so the Cabinet colleagues are very necessary <coughs> to, to this process, and we found that these uh, uh, meetings have been influential in shaping government thinking, and I, I think very satisfying for the communities in which have, uh, which have taken part. Uh, we make announcements, as you should, when you're doing these things. The three announcements we've made uh, thus far in this visit to Sky, an additional uh, investment in Selma Rosteg to support sound archiving and filmmaking projects based uh, here in Sky. We think these are hugely important. We think it's investment well made in the uh, in the uh, national treasure, the KIST, and, uh, and also in MG Alapa in terms of filmmaking talent among, uh, uh, among young people. We're announcing this afternoon the next stage in the process of land reform, uh, a subject dear to the hearts of, uh, of people in this community and indeed across the, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. And I'll be uh, appointing this afternoon the, the new land reform review group, which will be chaired by Dr. Alison Elliott, uh, former moderator of the Church of Scotland, who also has extensive experience working in the community sector. She'll chair the group. She'll be joined by Professor James Hunter and Dr. Sarah Skerritt uh, as vice chairs who have the experience uh, of Highlands and Islands uh, and rural development. And I, I know that uh, as we move forward to the next process in a reform of, the, of land tenure and land ownership in Scotland, that uh, there'll be a great deal of hope and expectation vested in the, uh, in the land reform group. Uh, and thirdly, uh, we're announcing about some of the, the detail in the uh, efforts to make sure that uh, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland are, are well prepared for the, to take advantage, to take the most, to make the most out of the absolutely magnificent film uh, uh, Brave, uh, which will be having its, uh, its release uh, in Scotland within the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's already been released in the United States uh, and uh, indeed in Russia and a range of other countries. It's topped the box office in both uh, America and Russia simultaneously. Uh, I, as First Minister, have been at the, uh, the world premiere in Los Angeles and the European premiere in the city of Edinburgh, the sacrifices I make for this country, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's an absolutely fabulous, stunning film. Uh, the real star of the film, of course, has a range of Scottish stars who are part of the, the voiceovers in the film, uh, you know, Billy Connolly, Robbie Coltrane, the, uh, the wonderful Kelly MacDonald and a, a range of other fantastic Scottish stars, but the, the real star of the film is Scotland. Uh, and the uh, imagination and the research and the care and the authenticity which has gone in, including, incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, this beautiful island of Skye, which is part of the, the backcloth uh, for this wonderful film. So we have to make sure that uh, uh, our tourist businesses and industries are, are fully geared up to take the best possible advantage uh, of uh, being part of the, the land of the, the brave, and announcements on that were also made uh, this afternoon. Well, gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here at uh, Arras, which of course is Gaelic for, for home. This uh, tourism and arts centre has around 263,000 visitors every year. Uh, Arras runs Sky Dance, who performed so wonderfully for, for those of you who were at the reception in uh, Portree High School last night. Uh, Aris delivers Scotland's only Gaelic youth uh, music initiative, teaching six instruments in schools in North Sky. And this week, I understand, runs the Sky Book Festival on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Uh, and are also cooperating in an international arts project in the Gaelic diaspora for the 2014, the next year of homecoming uh, in Scotland. But of course, this very auditorium is, as Michael Russell said and reminded us, is named after Sorley MacLean. Uh, the greatest Gaelic poet of the 20th century, one of the great European poets, indeed, of the 20th century. So perhaps a, 
uh, a quote from Sorry McLean to, to start this address. Uh, this is from his own translation into English. Uh, the mountains are speechless if they say what cannot be understood. For all the voices that may emerge from lips between Sutherland and the Mull, no point in being close at hand if their Gaelic uh, is not heard. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, we uh, uh, try in these, uh, in these cabinet uh, meetings and discussions uh, to basically set out some of the key issues that are facing the country and to do it by painting them in a, a, a local context, so tried to illustrate the importance uh, of some of the, the great issues facing Scotland uh, and trying to illustrate it with local examples. Somebody once said that all politics is truly local and that was a very wise person indeed because people look at things and look at their experience from their own experience in their own communities. Uh, this government has shown very substantial uh, commitment to the, the Gaelic language and to the, the Gael tax and have preserved the spending <clears throat> through a, an extraordinarily tough uh, spending round. We've defended the, the uh, origins of BBC Alipa and make sure it went on to, to Freeview, and that's how intend we tend to express our commitment uh, in terms not just of the language but of the culture of, of this part uh, of Scotland. But I want in my uh, address today to, to focus attention specifically on areas of economic policy and how they impinge uh, on this community uh, and the efforts that the Scottish Government is making to ameliorate the worst of the economic circumstances and to maximise the best. I want to turn firstly to the <clears throat> area of capital spending. As you may know and have seen, ladies and gentlemen, if you look in the whole and on the whole, you've got to judge these things that uh, employment rates in Scotland are better than elsewhere in the United Kingdom. Unemployment is slightly lower. Our economic activity rates are, are better as well. But we still face a, an extraordinarily serious situation, particularly for so many of our young people. In our estimation as a government, as a cabinet, uh, what is vitally needed at the present moment is a, a direct stimulus in terms of capital investment in the economy. Uh, the figures for overall output in the economy indicated a marginal decline in Scotland of 0.1% in the first quarter of this year. But however you cut the figures, that was better than the UK, which was 0.4%, but it's not really much consolation to be declining less fast than elsewhere uh, in the country. And what is needed is the, the ingredients of a, a genuine economic revival. The key to reason why the, <clears throat> the overall figures were negative is the fate of the construction industry at the present moment. And it was the construction industry declining by some 6% which dragged the rest of the uh, economy into double-dip recession. And therefore, if we are to tackle that and tackle it, we must. We must do it directly. We must tackle the, the cause or one of the causes of the construction sector being in such a depressed state. And that, of course, is the dramatic cuts in capital investment originally planned by Alistair Darling, which have been taken into effect uh, by the present Chancellor and the present government. So what we're calling for, what the evidence indicates, and what is now supported by a range of uh, opinions stretching from the, the Confederation of British Industry to the Scottish Trade Union Congress, and even now this week to the International Monetary Fund, is a, a direct capital injection into the economy. And so this week I wrote to the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I pointed out that even a, a stimulus in capital spending as limited as £5 billion, if applied in this current financial year, could make a significant difference uh, to the outlook for the construction sector and to the outlook for employment in many communities across this country. And I guaranteed that if the UK government agrees to such a stimulus, 
uh, than we would ensure that was spent in Scotland in this financial year. Not next year, the year after, the year after that, not Never Neverland, but this financial year. And to try and bring <coughs> the importance of that close to home, we set out a similar package earlier this year. The request was denied, it was turned down in the budget, despite the fact that I met the Prime Minister in February in Edinburgh, and I said to him, look, I really do think a capital injection into the economy is necessary. He said, well, we agree with that, but the problem is, of course, if you made such a capital injection, it wouldn't be spent until years to come. And I said, well, look, if I lay out £300 million worth of shovel-ready projects, that is, things that could be done right now in the economy if they were authorised, would you then agree to the capital injection? The Prime Minister said he would consider that. I sent him a list of shovel-ready projects across Scotland, things that were ready to go, things you could put shovels in the ground, uh, and the answer came there, none, not from the Prime Minister, not from the Chancellor on the budget, and not up until now. <clears throat> However, John Sweeney, that guy there, from, from the right, uh, managed through his astute economic management to find a, a third of it in his budget, an announcement he made just before the end of the, uh, the Scottish Parliament uh, session, and that was £100 million, not adequate in terms of the overall stimulus required in the economy, but nonetheless a valuable contribution. Now, as part of that, <coughs> West Highland College campus here in Portree will benefit from a 1.5 million extension of its arts and education centre. That will provide better facilities for courses in the creative industries and construction, renewables and food and drink. But importantly, that is an injection of spending into the economy. It creates employment, it creates activity, it creates confidence. Uh, so that is what was done with £100 million, an example of what has been done across Scotland. What we need is something much greater than that, and that's why our demand is uh, for a £5 billion stimulus across the UK, which would allow something just over £400 million in Scotland. And if that were done, uh, then we would guarantee that that money would go into projects starting in this financial year. We have a, a range of measures which are under our control, things we have done to try and increase confidence in the economy. We have no compulsory redundancies in the public sector in Scotland. That doesn't mean the public sector is not declining. It means that nobody is in fear of losing their job in the public sector by forced redundancy. It helps economic confidence. We've introduced a, a living wage in the public sector in Scotland of £7.20 an hour, and I'm delighted to say that the new administration of Highland Council has also now followed and signalled their intent to introduce what is called a living wage, a social wage. We've... Uh, applied a council tax freeze for four years now uh, across the country. A council tax in 2007 was the most unpopular tax in the country. It was the one that bore little or no relationship to people's ability to pay, uh, therefore was uh, oppressively, after more than doubling over the previous few years, was oppressively bearing down on family budgets. We've frozen it since 2008, giving vital relief, particularly to old age pensioners and other families who are struggling with that particular tax. We provide certain services in Scotland, like uh, university and college tuition, uh, like free prescriptions. Uh, we do them free because they are things which we believe are above and beyond the marketplace, that the right of free education is fundamental to uh, a developed, civilised society, is the essence of, of, of Scotland, to have access to education and the right to a free health service. It seems to me another mark of a civilised society. We are pursuing a, a route in terms of defending vital public services, which is quite different uh, from what has been uh, pursued south of the border, and we intend to continue to do so. In last year's election campaign, probably the, 
best reception I received at any meeting anywhere in the entire election campaign was in the city of Liverpool, uh, where on question time I contrasted what was happening in the Scottish Health Service and the defence of the idea of a public national health service to what was happening south of the border and the disintegration of the health service which has been planned there under the auspices of this present government. The Liverpudlian reaction was extraordinary <coughs> to that statement. Indeed, after the, uh, after the question time meeting, there was uh, some suggestions that uh, when Scotland becomes independent, Liverpool's coming with us, uh, which uh, we are actively considering at the, uh, at the present moment. In terms of business, we've introduced uh, the small business bonus, of course, which provides £9 million in relief uh, to small business across the, the Highlands and Islands. In terms of inward investment, Ernst & Young confirmed just last month that in terms of job creation from companies coming to invest in Scotland, we are far, far outperforming the other areas of these islands. We're outperforming London at the present moment in terms of numbers of jobs created. An example of that was the crucial announcement uh, for the Highlands of uh, LifeScan, the Johnson & Johnson Company, deciding to put all of its research into diabetes worldwide into Inverness, an absolutely crucial strategic investment uh, where the Highlands will be the, uh, the centre of, uh, of research, uh, which hopefully will provide relief and uh, comfort uh, to those suffering from that debilitating disease uh, across this planet. Uh, I don't need to tell people in this island about excellence in terms of the, some of the greatest successes we've had in the last few years in terms of food and drink exports, the, the quality of the the food and cuisine and the chefs on this island, Lady Claire MacDonald, Shirley and Eddie Spear, is legendary, not just in the Isle of Skye, uh, but across this country and internationally. These are some of the things we can do, are doing. I mentioned earlier the, uh, the maximising the opportunities from the, the Disney Pixar film Brave, but also maximising the ability of young talent uh, through uh, MG Alapa to uh, develop their own, uh, uh, their own talent in filmmaking. Renewable energy is an area where Scotland is leading the world in terms of marine energy and wave and uh, tidal power. Uh, the 8 megawatt tidal stream proposal at Kyorea, uh, for example, locally is a, a fantastic example of that. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a range of things uh, in which we are attempting to strike out a different and better course uh, for uh, Scotland, for the Highlands and Islands from what is being pursued by the Westminster Government, but there are things which are obvious examples of where we need control over economic levers. And one of these, for example, is the issue of capital investment. Let me give you a second. We are determined as we move into uh, uh, an age where technology has transformed, will continue to transform, and the pace of transformation is hugely greater than anything any of us have ever experienced in terms of communication technology. And if any country, if any area, if any, any country is to keep up, then they must have access uh, to that uh, technology. Uh, over the last 24 hours, I've had some difficulty with my iPad and Nile in the Sky. Uh, if there's any consolation, incidentally, I was having difficulty within Silicon Valley two weeks ago. But nonetheless, I've been having substantial difficulty, of which you shall all be familiar. Uh, and of course, if uh, 4G broadband access uh, is not completed, uh, then it means that communities are left behind uh, in technology and communication. So last month, the, the Scottish Government committed £120 million to the Highlands and Islands Next Generation Broadband Project. This investment will mean Highlands and Islands Enterprise in partnership with BT can make major improvements to the region's broadband network by 2015. But one of the biggest obstacles we face 
and connectivity of the rural areas is a persistent refusal of successive UK governments to ensure that requirements are placed on providers for coverage at the level of Scotland as opposed to the UK as a whole. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, the current 3G network was required to cover 80% of the population of the UK. But by definition, ladies and gentlemen, you can cover 80% of the population of the UK, and in that 20%, then you'll miss out a huge area of the landmass uh, of Scotland. So we welcome, of course, the UK coverage requirement is now being increased to 90%. But if the Scottish Parliament had control over telecoms, the requirement for 90% would be put in place for Scotland, not for the UK uh, as a whole. And exactly the same issue applies in relation to the forthcoming 4G auction for which we want the coverage obligation to be increased to at least 98% of the population, and we want that 98% to apply not just at UK level, we want it to apply to every part of the United Kingdom. So it's 98% within Scotland. It's just one area, perhaps one people haven't thought about before, where the lack of powers, the lack of regulatory power, means real disadvantage to rural communities, because without that imposition, on the major providers, in addition to the investment that the public sector, that's you and I, ladies and gentlemen, are putting in to help with the provision, then it means that areas are, are left behind uh, in that remarkable transformation in communications and in the ability to communicate. Of course, the reverse is also true. If the uh, new wave broadband, the 4G communications, are available in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland as they should be, then the advantages of people living and working in rural areas are exemplified and multiplied many times over. Because frankly, ladies and gentlemen, across a, a range of industries, if you can compete and act effectively work in this community and communities like it across the Highland Hills, why on earth would you want to stay and work anywhere else? Uh, so the advantage of rural connectivity is not just uh, in terms of not allowing communities to fall behind, it's also in terms of putting a huge advantage in terms of communities which have that access to new technology. So on a range of issues, promoting economic recovery to telecoms, I would submit that there is a case for Scotland having the powers of a normal country. I could have mentioned the Crown Estate or welfare reform as key issues which affect communities, which would be far better under control of the Scottish uh, Parliament. Yesterday, when I, I visited uh, Selma Rostig, uh, I was given a, a, a fiddle tune uh, written by uh, Alistair B. Fraser, and he composed it in the, the last week. Here it is here, ladies and gentlemen. It is wonderful, and the, the, the fiddlers in the, in the summer school, who come from, I think, uh, 16 different countries, ladies and gentlemen, uh, down in Selmore at the present moment. We're practicing this just for 24 hours from my arrival yesterday, and it was wonderful having the, the mass fiddlers of the Selmore Summer School uh, playing this tune called The Referendum, ladies and gentlemen. As it says, written in honour of the visit of First Minister Alex Salmon to Selmore Ostig on the Isle of Skye. Alistair wrote this, uh, this passage, this tune, ladies and gentlemen, and he wrote it very interesting. It uh, actually it says at the, uh, the start, Play optimistically. <laughs> uh, and it goes, it's a rattling, fantastic, wonderful tune. But it ends, incidentally, in a question, or perhaps questions, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as opposed to in an answer. Uh, and Alistair said to me yesterday, he said, he fully hopes and expects and 
a couple of years' time or so to return to this tune and to supply a rousing answer to the question he's written. Thank you very much. Now it's your turn, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, I would ask for your help in doing this because there's lots of people here and many of you will want to ask questions. I'm going to take them in batches of three. I'm going to work my way across the hall, probably starting from the far side and working across. Um, do forgive me if you don't get to ask your question. You have a piece of paper in front of you and you can put that question down on paper and you can put it in the box at the end and you will get an answer. But if you are going to ask a question, then please do so briefly and to the point, and after we've taken three, the First Minister will distribute them amongst uh, the, the Cabinet and decide who's going to answer them. I should have said before I started, not only have we got the Cabinet stage, we've got my colleague John Finney here, MSP for the Highland Region, he's very welcome as well, and I think probably more councillors than we can shake a stick at, so uh, my apology for not introducing each of them individually. But it's nice to see everybody. Can I ask people to put their hands up if they have a question to ask? and then um, I will work my way through the hall. People usually start slowly and then get more enthusiastic. So let's start up in the corner here, and there are three questions. I'll take that one, that one, and Boyd here. So please, use it first, sir. Have the microphone. If you'd introduce yourself before you do so. Uh, first Minister, uh, Neil Ferguson, um, a relative of uh, Sordi McLean that you mentioned uh, earlier there. Uh, born and brought up in Sky. I just ask the First Minister and colleagues to give us an assurance that marriage as we have it will not be changed for the following reasons. Marriage provides children with a mother and father and should not be redefined. It's a concern for us that young families be established in our community here in Sky to take advantage of your economic growth. Your decision not to have a referendum or redefining marriage points to marks of leadership, yet such a fundamental change is not normally decided by politicians. Precedent in such matters has been by a referendum of the Scottish people. Your consultation and honest opinion polls show that a majority of Scots do not want to redefine marriage. The Scottish Parliament has no moral authority to change the meaning of marriage for everyone. Your support for Topper and is commended. Will you, in this instant, support our good and godly government heritage, the Twa Kingdoms, in brief, the establishment principle, the Smabet Hill and Glen that your forefathers died for, all that was behind a strong Scottish government at the Union of the Crowns, a time when marriage was clear in our laws. Men, have encouraged, men were encouraged to leave their drinking dens with strong arms and stout hearts strengthen and provide means for their families. And in this case, take hold of your economic initiatives. The question to you, Mr. Thank you very much indeed. Can I just ask that if you ask a question, you do ask a shorter question. I'm sorry, Mr. Ferguson, but that means somebody's already lost a chance to ask another one. So can we keep it as brief as possible, please? Thank you. Second question. Thank you, Mr. Russell. I'll try to be very brief. Uh, Murdo McLeod. I too would like to take up the vexed and, of course, very topical question of the redefinition of marriage. I think we'd all agree that it will have far-reaching implications, whichever way it goes. But we've heard of assurances and reassurances being given that churches, 
public sector employees and others would not, feel, would not fall foul of the law uh, if there is a change. Is it not the case that such assurances are really utterly worthless as the Scottish Government has no power over UK-wide equalities legislation? Thank you. Boyd Robertson, Principal Solmore. We've met before, First Minister. <laughs> and can I begin by thanking you and, and your ministers, uh, Minister for Education and the Minister for Infrastructure, for all your support for Gaelic and for Solmore in the recent past, and for the support you are about to give in the near future as well. My question, however, doesn't relate to Gaelic or to education. It's, I want to move on to the subject of transport. And I have uh, several issues that I would like to draw to your attention in this regard. The A82, uh, on which I travel frequently, is uh, in bad need of repair and upgrading. And I would ask that you give urgent consideration to the upgrading of, of the A82. The Strom Ferry bypass is an, also an urgent case requiring attention. The Malig Armadale ferry service is improved uh, in recent times, but is still far short of what we require in, the, in Sky. Sky uh, needs the kind of service that the Ardemarchen and Cowell Peninsulas received just now, an all-day uh, service from early morning to late evening all year round. And finally, I would like you to, uh, I'd like to ask uh, if you have plans to negotiate with HIE H, uh, um, uh, and uh, HITRANS rather and other agencies to see if the, an air service to Sky can be restored. We are one of the few islands that doesn't have an air service at present. You mentioned the tourist industry already and how important it is to Sky, not just for the tourist industry but also for businesses located here for our college uh, administration and purposes, uh, near service would be a wonderful boon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Boyd. Before the First Minister does so, can I just welcome Fiona McLeod, MSP, who I've just noticed, the MSP for Strathkelvin and Bears Den. So they're, they're coming faster than I can talk about them. First Minister. effective way to do it. Uh, I'll, I'll just stand here and direct. <laughs> it's all right if we have two directors, Michael, is that all right? <laughs> yeah, can, I, can I address firstly uh, Neil and uh, uh, Murdo's question? Uh, and then I'm going to ask Nicola Sturgeon, who leads this cabinet subcommittee uh, on the issue, uh, to, say, to say a bit about it and where we, how we're proceeding. Firstly, on uh, Neil's point, can I just explain for a second why we didn't think uh, that a referendum was the appropriate way uh, to go in this matter. And it's a, an issue that was put to us uh, by a number of people, uh, by the, uh, the Cardinal, uh, Patrick Keith O'Brien, for example, uh, about 10 days ago, but, uh, but others as well. And we looked at the issue very carefully last uh, week at the, the Cabinet in terms of a, a referendum. And I think the, the issue basically is that Referendums in Scotland, in terms of referendum traditions, are constitutional referendums, certainly at government level, uh, and that would apply to the, the UK as well. This is an issue of conscience, 
uh, in which there will be a free vote, uh, as far as the SNP is concerned, anyway, in the Scottish Parliament. And I believe the other parties will do, will do the same thing. And on matters of, of conscience, as opposed to the Constitution, in a circumstance where no political party advocated a referendum in last year's election, uh, we felt that this is a matter decided by the, the conscience of individual parliamentarians, uh, as opposed to by a uh, national referendum. Uh, and secondly, on Murdo's point, the position, Murdo, in terms of the, the consultation, we made very clear that if the uh, government and the parliament actually go, decide to go down the road of, uh, of single-sex marriage, then it would be done uh, on the basis that protections would be offered not just to religions, not just to churches, uh, but to individual celebrants within the churches. Uh, and therefore, any uh, decision to proceed it would be accompanied by such protections. If the protections weren't there, uh, then that would be a different context uh, entirely. Uh, so that issue is not uh, uh, some meaningless commitment. That issue was part of the, the consultation document to which so many people have responded. Nicola, do you want to pick up the issue from there? Of course, uh, First Minister. I think the first thing I would want to say very, very clearly, and I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of all of my colleagues here, is that we are deeply, deeply aware of the fact that there are very deeply held views on this issue, both for and against the introduction of same-sex marriages. And that's why the Cabinet has and will continue to take very great care over this decision. Um, it's, it's right and proper that we take the time to consider all of the views that have been expressed and make sure that we are properly taking into account all of the views that have been expressed and all of the concerns and anxieties that have been uh, raised along the way. I think uh, there is very clearly in Scotland a, a long-standing tradition of treating people with dignity, with respect uh, and equality, but there's also a very deep commitment to the principles of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of worship. And the job of the cabinet is to make sure we properly take account of all of that. Uh, I, uh, as you know, uh, the, uh, I've been asked by the cabinet to lead a subcommittee. The cabinet, the government hasn't yet uh, intimated what we consider to be the right way forward on this issue yet. We have given a commitment that we will do so before the end of this month. But let me reiterate the point the First Minister made. Uh, there is no question, absolutely no question, that any church or any religious celebrant would be compelled against their wishes to conduct same-sex marriages. Uh, Murdo is absolutely correct in the point he makes about the fact that the Equality Act is reserved. Um, and one of the things the subcommittee I'm leading has been looking at is how should we decide to proceed to legislate for same-sex marriages, we could give those commitments and honour the commitments we made at the start of the consultation, um, not just about churches, but about individual celebrants as well. Uh, so these are the particular issues uh, we're looking at just now. And the commitment we can give is that we will move forward uh, on this, firstly, in the way we consider to be uh, right, but in a way that seeks to respect all views on this issue uh, and to honour the commitments around protections that we gave at the start of the consultation. Thanks, Nicola. Now, Boyd, uh uh, I know you, you're travelling in the A82 somewhat less than you used to, uh, given that you're now resident uh, in this wonderful uh, island, but it's a very important point about transport communications. Uh, so, Alec Neil, would you like to take up Boyd's point about the transport infrastructure that is ferries, roads and air? 
Yeah, I will indeed, Boyd. First of all, let me start with roads. And let me say, in the last five years, we've actually invested £280 million in upgrading the roads in, northwest, in the northwest of Scotland. And we intend to do more in the next five years. We'll be publishing a document in September, which will be called the Transport Refresh of the Strategy. And in particular, that will have more to say in particular about the A82. Now, as far as the A82 is concerned, I would point out three things. First of all, we have, as you know, commissioned the work at Pulpit Rock. We're commissioning the work for the bypass at Crean Larich. And there's a particular issue, uh, mainly due to flooding and other issues around Glencoy and Loch Lochy. We acted as fast as we possibly could when the issues arose, but we're looking for a permanent solution in terms of reconstructing those relevant parts of the A82 because we recognise the importance of the A82 as a trunk road into and out of uh, this part of the Highlands. Uh, secondly, on the armadale Malig ferry, uh, first of all, let me say, despite some of the rumours put around by certain people, there is absolutely, categorically, without qualification, <laughs> no threat to uh, the ferry <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, I do take, and we have uh, obviously had the submissions to the ferry's review on the need to improve the service, and we are seriously looking at that and we will be publishing in the autumn the outcome of the ferries review and our new draft ferries plan, this, the core purpose of which is to try to improve the ferry service uh, in all the relevant parts of Scotland. So hopefully we can go at least some way to, to meeting your requirements there. In terms of air services, there is actually a study going on just now as we speak, jointly between HITRANS, which is the regional transport agency for the Highlands, along with Highlands and Islands Enterprise and the Council, and obviously we ourselves are uh, providing support to that, to evaluate the possibility of getting air services into Sky. Now, if we were already independent and had control over uh, air services and the regulation of air services, we could actually move a lot faster, but because we are limited in terms of our powers in this area, we have to act in terms of incentives uh, and with what we've got, we are keen in principle to do it, but we have to make sure that the uh, resources would be in place and that the market would be there to support such a service. But we are actively uh, looking at that. And the final point I think you made was on strong ferry bypass. Let me say categorically again, you know, it's a 140-mile diversion, so we are very, very, very conscious of the situation. And even although this road is a local road and the responsibility of Highland Council, Keith Brown has actually written this week uh, to the uh, local group and a copy to the council, making it absolutely clear mm. that in trying to find a permanent solution to that problem, the Scottish Government, and in particular Transport Scotland, will help look to provide as much support as we can. Uh, I can't promise any money because I've got no money left, given all the commitments we've made in the next two or three years. But if we had more money available, we might be able to, to help out in the longer run. But we are very conscious of the need to get a solution to that problem. And we have made it absolutely clear to the Council we'll do everything we possibly can to uh, help them uh, come up with an appropriate solution. I should have said, Boyd, that when I was talking earlier on about shovel-ready projects, uh, uh, and I, I gave the example of the, the, the college here in Portree uh, in terms of what's been awarded already. But many, many of the, uh, 
of shovel ready projects, things that you know have planning permission can be started straight away are actually uh, smaller road schemes, you know, small in terms of the overall scale and budget, but big in terms of the the impact they can have on uh, on communities and either making a journey less prone to uh, natural hazard or, or for that matter a, a journey less uh, frustrating. So they're actually very good examples of what capital shovel ready projects actually amount to and what they mean to local communities. Michael, we're in your hands for the next three questions. Thank you. Well, uh, we're going to have to do some in terms of questions and answers, but I'm going to get over there in 25 minutes. Question there, question there, any question in this row? Uh, we'll take that question there, okay? Start. I'm Cameron Talaka, retired GP from Broadford. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has rightly picked up on the anxiety that's caused by the prospective change in marriage laws in this country and that your government has been expressing the sympathetic interest in. I would simply like to ask what time has been given and what consideration has been given to the possible consequences of this, especially the adverse consequences and especially the potential adverse consequences to children who inevitably are going to become increasingly exposed to homosexual relations as a way of life. Uh, thank you, Hamish Fraser, and thank you, First Minister, for calling on us here in Sky. Uh, my con uh, question uh, is in relation to connectivity, which you, which you talked about at the very beginning. The connectivity, and we welcome all the money that's being uh, promised and spent uh, in relation to that, but what other bit of connectivity I think has to be taken into account and has to be pushed forward, and maybe the government could do something about that, is the fact that if you've got two utility companies providing a service to remote <coughs> rural areas, then they should be working together to make sure they're making best use of the time and the efforts that go into to doing that. And I'll make an example of that in the Elgol Peninsula of Sky, where Scottish Water are at this present time taking a long uh, uh, pipe from, from Broadford all the way through there. Yet there is no uh, connectivity between these two companies, between British Telecom themselves, to lay a fibre optic uh, cable on that same line, for example, where there's a lot of work has to be done in consultation and various different bits of legislation regarding the sensitivity of that area. This work has to be worked in tandem, and it helps out to make sure this uh, aspiration that the Scottish Government and everybody else in business has to make sure that the connectivity is achieved as quickly as possible. Let's get these people work together, and maybe the Scottish Government can put a bit of pressure on these utility companies like BT and Scottish Water to do that. Thank you very much. Third one. Hello, uh, Morag Hanna from Sky Nochal Citizens Advice Bureau. Given the likelihood of job losses in the third sector due to budgetary constraints, what are the Scottish Government doing to address the impact on voluntary organisations such as the Citizens Advice Bureau? Thank you. Right, three questions on, on different subjects. Uh, I didn't catch the, the, the name of the retired GP, but can I ask, uh, Nicola, could you address uh, uh, the question about the amount of uh, thought and consideration that's been given to the ramifications of uh, proposals in single-sex marriage? Well, I, I won't go through um, all of the comments I made uh, in response to the previous questions. Can I simply assure you and assure everybody here 
that the Cabinet has given very, very careful consideration and is giving very careful consideration to all of the different aspects of this uh, debate, uh, including uh, the one that, that you raise. I, I think the welfare of children should be at the heart of decisions we make on a whole range of different issues. I, I say uh, this next thing not to uh, pass comment on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but we live in a, a changing world. I, I saw a statistic uh, only recently that suggested that now over 50% of children in Scotland are born outside of marriage altogether. Uh, now, the point I'm making is that we must put the interests of children uh, at the top of our priorities, whether we're talking about health matters, obviously education matters, or the kind of sensitive issues uh, that you're raising today. So the assurance uh, from the Cabinet is that all of these uh, matters and all of the different issues and concerns and anxieties and arguments that have been made here are being very, very carefully reflected on uh, and will be taken into account as we come to a final decision on the issue. Alec, uh, an absolutely smashing question on connectivity, not in terms of how we normally discuss it, in terms of uh, broadband or road links, but actually connectivity between the companies who are responsible for the connectivity. So they are individual companies. Scottish Water is a public company in Scotland, thank goodness, and BT is a, a, a private company. But you're the Secretary for Infrastructure, which means that you're responsible for both telecoms and water. So. How, what are you doing in terms of your connectivity to connect up BT and Scottish Water? Well, I can tell you one of the things we've done, First Minister, and I'm sure Mr Fraser will be pleased about this, is in Dundee, for example, we do have fibre optic cable going through the sewage pipes. The problem is it's reckoned the rats will start to eat them within the next uh, five or six years. So the basic principle is absolutely right that we need, I mean, there's nothing more angersome than driving up a road that's been dug up by one utility and a month later it's dug up by another utility. We actually have a roads commissioner whose job in life it is, is to ensure that there is proper coordination both directly at national level and through the local authorities at local level. So there's already a body set up whose job it is to try to coordinate that activity, although it's not always possible to do so. But you're absolutely right in terms of when we're laying all this fibre optic cable, uh, in terms of our contract, and I was at Highlands and Islands Enterprise, I met their broadband team yesterday, and they're of the same view with their contract, and that is that there will be an obligation on whoever wins the contracts, the public contracts for the rollout of superfast broadband, there will be a requirement, contractual requirement, for them to use existing uh, infrastructure that's there and not to dig up the roads unnecessarily. So if there's a water pipe that can take the uh, fibre optic, if there's a sewage pipe that safely can take the fibre optic, if there, is, uh, if there are other ways, for example, right across the Highlands, uh, there is the Janet network, which is used by higher education, which is a fibre optic network. So uh, there are many examples, particularly in uh, communities with colleges, where that technology can be used without having to relay fibre optic cables in that particular area. So there will be a contractual commitment when we issue these contracts for whoever wins it to ensure that they do exactly as uh, Mr Fraser suggests. Well, Mr. Fraser, just as a, a piece of additional information, some people used to ask me why I was so against the Edinburgh Trams project. And the answer, Mr. Fraser, was my experience as a, 
a small boy growing up in Olivgo. My, my granda was a town plumber and I was his apprentice. And after he retired, he used to do occasional jobs and I had a very clearest memory of the plumbers in Olivgo coming to see my granda and saying, Sandy, we can't find the water pipes. And my granda would say to them, no, we shifted them in 1936. They're 50 yards down the road. They're not where the plans say they are. And the reason for that, ladies and gentlemen, was Linlivgo was an ancient medieval town. Edinburgh is an ancient medieval town. And I just knew that as soon as they started to dig up Edinburgh, nothing would be where it was meant to be. Uh, and that was one of, the, <laughs> one of the key problems of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, the, tram, uh, the tram project. So common sense in these matters and knowing where things are. I think your question is an absolute cracker of a question, Mr. Fraser. <laughs> Uh, now, John, the, uh, Lady Morag, uh, she asked uh, about uh, the impact on key voluntary sector organisations of the restraint, the cutbacks in public spending. What are you, what are you doing, John Swinney? Well, the, the, the first thing to acknowledge, Morag, is that, and I think this is acknowledged by everybody, is that we are facing an incredible pressure on public expenditure. Um, we've seen substantial declines, both in terms of the, the revenue budget and the capital budget. But within those constraints, th there are two things which um, we've tried to do which are designed to protect the third sector. The first is that in terms of the government funding that's available to the third sector, we've actually, despite the fact our revenue budgets have gone down, we have maintained the amount of money that is, um, that is allocated to third sector organisations. So despite the fact, so essentially the financial pain has fallen elsewhere within our budget than in the third sector areas. And we've seen that as important to give a signal to other public authorities that we believe sustained investment in the third sector is very, very important in protecting uh, a whole range of different vulnerable uh, groups and also in sustaining particular projects around the country. And I think what um, strikes me very clearly as a minister responsible for the third sector is that many, many third sector projects involve very small amounts of money but have disproportionate impact given that small amount of money that they control. And it's important, therefore, that we ensure that our resources are targeted effectively to maintain and to support that provision. So the maintenance of budgets was a priority for the Cabinet for the three years of the spending review. Second thing we've done is in our response to the Christie Commission that the First Minister established on a review of our public services, when we responded to the conclusions of the late Campbell Christie, one of the points we, um, we made was the importance that we attach to the third sector being involved in the redesign of public services at local level and to becoming increasingly involved in partnership with other public authorities in assuming a greater role in the delivery of public services. That's particularly responsible for, um, particularly relevant I should say, for social enterprises or for community interest companies which are increasingly delivering public services in individual localities. And what we've said to the, the, the main public sector bodies at local level in the health service and in local government is that we should be working with the third sector to design new ways of working to ensure that uh, public services can be provided more effectively and also that third sector organisations can have uh, the prospect of, 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 of bidding to deliver those services uh, and uh, to produce the outcomes as a result. The final point I'd make is that one of our objectives has been to make sure that we supported a much more, a much stronger, financially stronger third sector. And we've just allocated a number of contracts to design to uh, improve the financial strength of the third sector 
Uh, these, have come th these have all been awarded to third sector networks to deliver these contracts, which is a particular point that I'm very proud of in, the, in, the, in the, the public sector procurement that we've delivered that. And it's to give a signal that the government sees the role that third sector organisations can play as being ever more significant in the period going forward. And the steps we've taken of protecting budgets and giving a greater role in public service delivery are designed to give that reassurance. Michael, we're in your hands. I should also say that you will get the chance to speak to each member of the cabinet afterwards where there will be tea and something to eat upstairs and where I can continue that discussion with John at that stage. Now in this row, I've got this lady here, I've got Ian Blackwood there, and I'm going to take this lady here, and that will be the three here. So, you first. Uh, Mary MacDonald from Dumbegan. Um, as Mr McCaskill has accepted the recommendation made by the Angelini project to close Court and Vale, the only women's prison in Scotland, what steps are going to be taken to ensure that women's recidivism doesn't continue? Yes, good afternoon. Thank you. Ian Blackford from Glendale. Just to come back to the question that was put by Boyd uh, on, on Airlinks and, and Alex Reply, there was, of course, a high trans report in 2007, the last report that we had, that had an aspiration of developing air services in Sky somewhere between 2013 and 2017. And I think in the light of the need to get economic activity kick-started and the desire for capital, uh, capital investment, this would be a good way of doing that, something that would be very beneficial both to the tourist industry and other businesses in Sky. And we should remember in that report that what they indicated from the economic assessment that demand for passenger numbers would be somewhere in the region of about 23,000 a year, which would be enough to justify a twice or three times daily service. Um, so again, the question is, can the government perhaps look at this with uh, high trans to push this forward over the course of the coming years? Secondly, and lastly, very briefly, I think in the debate that we're going to have on the new Scotland that we hope to see uh, post-independence, I think the requirements of health provision in Sky are very much part of that debate. And whether or not, as we develop that vision of a new Scotland, if we can revisit the issue of whether or not we could have surgical care back in the island, because there is no question that there's a considerable uh, inconvenience to those that have to go to Rigmore or to Belford. You're talking of 140 miles from the north end of the island. So inconvenience for patients, but of course, uh, for those visiting them as well. And I think in terms of that new Scotland that we want to develop, I'd like us to see, I'd like us to look at that issue. Thank you. Thank you. First Minister, Anne Martin. Anne Martin, and again, it's about marriage. Thank you for setting up a subcommittee to look into the problems of redefining marriage. Marriage has served us well for centuries and is a bedrock institution of society. Children need a mother and father. Do we ever give any thought to the rights of children and future children? I do oppose rede redefining marriage and I don't want marriage between a man and a woman downgraded. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, three questions, please. Nicola, would you like to pick up Martha's question and then move on to Ian's second question <coughs> on the, uh, the health service? I think, thank you for your question. And, and you know, again, if I can just reiterate the point that you know, we understand the depth and the strength of feeling on both sides of this debate. And as a, 
a government I'm not sure we will ever be entirely able to completely reconcile uh, those different views, but we are working very hard to understand and respect different viewpoints and to take them into account as we uh, reach a final decision. I, I said in uh, response to the question earlier that the uh, interests and welfare of children, I, I think, should you know, be a, a guiding principle for us. And, every decision uh, that we make across a whole uh, spectrum of different issues. Um, obviously, we, we do live in a society uh, that changes. I, I don't know anybody uh, on uh, the side of the debate who uh, that proposes same-sex marriage that, that wants to downgrade traditional uh, marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, if anything, they want to strengthen the institution of marriage by being part of it, I, I suppose. Um, but the interests of children... Uh, are paramount, but as I said in response to the earlier question, we have uh, many children now in Scotland born outside of, of marriage, and we must make sure that in any of these decisions uh, we're putting the, the welfare of, of children uh, at the centre and ensuring that whether a child lives with a, a single parent, uh, with a, a mother and a father, or in, in whatever uh, form of family relationship, they're being properly cared for and their welfare is being promoted, and that's very much uh, at the heart of the, the thinking of the government. Uh, Ian, your question, I, I absolutely agree with. I'm, as Health Secretary, very, very mindful, whether I'm in Sky or in any of the other islands, about, uh, or, or not even islands, in some of the uh, more uh, remote parts of mainland Scotland, of the considerable difficulties people can have in accessing healthcare in a way that people who live like I do in Glasgow take for granted. And, you know, we've tried very hard as a government and will continue to do so to look for opportunities to improve local access to healthcare. And I think there's uh, a live debate and should always be a live debate about the balance of provision uh, between local access and perhaps having visiting specialists or uh, having uh, people going elsewhere for treatment. One of the opportunities that may uh, come uh, for people in Sky over uh, the next period, of course, is about the future of hospital provision. You've got two very highly valued hospitals, Portree and uh, the hospital at Broadford. Uh, there's been considerable capital investment in both of these hospitals in recent times, but I, I think most people would accept that neither of them are uh, perhaps uh, buildings that are fit for the long-term future. So I think at some stage in the not-too-distant future, there will be a debate about possible new-build hospital provision in Sky. And whenever uh, that kind of debate happens, it's not just a debate about bricks and mortar. It should be a debate about the kind of services you want to see in your hospitals in Sky. And I'm sure uh, you'll all be part of that. And the more services that can be delivered locally, the better, in my view. Alec, how about Ian's point on the Air Services Academy? He's, he's done a, a passenger number estimate and a business plan. I mean, the work's all done for you. I mean, come on. Absolutely, and it's very kind of him to offer it for nothing. Uh, but <laughs> but, when, but weren't you both uh, in your past lives business consultants uh, of one kind or another? Does a business consultant charge another business consultant? I've often wondered about that. No, what they do is borrow your watch and tell you the time. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're in politics. Aren't Absolutely, you? much the same kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, no, we're aware of the study that Ian referred to, First Minister. Um, it was done about six years ago, and obviously market conditions have changed since then. But clearly the purpose of doing the study we're engaged in now with High Trans is to evaluate the possibility of getting air services into Sky. We are keen to do it, but we've got obviously to have a robust business case that's updated for 2012-13.
And then the, the question that came from Mary, uh, the, there for addressed to you, Kenny, the, uh, just a word of explanation, Elish Angelini is the former Lord Advocate, that's uh, Frank's predecessor, uh, and uh, she, she produced a report a few months back uh, which uh, outlined uh, the case for a radical rethink uh, in terms of custodial uh, sentences and also the placement of uh, women prisoners. Kenny, what's the current situation and, uh, and thinking on the Elish Angeli report? Well, I'm very grateful to Mary for a very thoughtful question. I think we have to put it in perspective why we set up the Angelini Commission, not simply with Dame Elish Angelini, but with Sheriff Danny Scullion and also with Linda de Castiger, Head of Public Health in Glasgow. We've got the lowest recorded crime stats in Scotland in 37 years. Even violent crime is down. And yet we've got more people in prison than ever before. And even in the summer, today I get a weekly briefing as to numbers of people in prison. And prison numbers usually go down in the summer, but actually female prisoners had gone up this week from last week by one to 475. We don't have 475 dangerous women out there. Dame Ailey Shangelini made that clear. What do we have to do about it? Well, Contevale is not fit for purpose. It was built in the 1970s. It can't be rebuilt on site as some other prisons such as Perth or Sochten have been done. And the prison service are looking at what the options are. I've made it clear that I accept the report that Contevale will have to close. It can't be rebuilt. But we can't just build a prison out of fresh air. We have to go away and look at the options where one can, because there will have to be a, a, an alternative site, secure site for female prisoners, but there are other matters being addressed. But I think the fundamental part that uh, Elish Angelini addressed is that there's far too many women in prison who should not be there. So we will address Conton Vale. It will take time and there will have to be a new institution constructed. But we have to make sure that we do not continually lock up these people. Some do have to go there because they some have committed a very small minority serious violent offences and they have to be dealt with. Others sadly have horrendous and quite often multiple problems. The levels of mental health problems, addiction problems, being the victims more often than the perpetrators of violence and what we have to look at is how do we stop them going into the criminal justice system in the first place? How do we treat them, not incarcerate them? Some of that ultimately has to be dealt with by the criminal justice system, but it's why I work with cabinet colleagues to make sure that we look at other matters, such as you may have heard yourself, Mary, about the 218 centre in Glasgow. How do we expand that? Where we provide community psychiatric nurses, where we provide physical support to address addiction, where we provide the mentoring and skills that are necessary, so we will rebuild a female prison to deal with the minority of offenders who will have to go there, but we have to make sure that we actually treat those who need to be treated and only punish those who need to be punished. Now, I'm going to bring in uh, the Damielish uh, Angelini's successor, uh, Frank Mulholland, uh, the Lord Advocate. Uh, Frank, before you answer this question, uh, this lowest level of crime for, for 37 years, now, some people, myself included, might say that might have something to do with a thousand extra police in the streets and communities of Scotland. But other people might argue that there's a reverse causation. It's because there is that record number of prisoners that we have the, the lowest level of crime. So where do you stand? How do you explain the, the figures, apparently contradictory, of saying lowest level of crime for 37 years, but highest number of, uh, of prisoners in history, including this issue of uh, the number of women in prison? 
Well, I, th I think there's a, you know, a, a point about serious crime, uh, that the rates of solving serious crime are up. Uh, so the Scottish Police Forces are doing a, an excellent job uh, and uh, devoting uh, resources and expertise into the investigation of serious crime. From a prosecutor's point of view, uh, we uh, have developed specialisms uh, which we devote specialist prosecutors to each type of, 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 of crime itself, and in particular serious crime. So what we're seeing is we're seeing, uh, as Kenny had said, had highlighted um, most serious crime dealt with and long sentences been imposed by the court as a means of protecting the public and punishing the offender. I think Mary made a very good point. I'm, you might f uh, be surprised to hear this from a Lord Advocate, the head of the prosecution service. But I firmly believe that prosecution is a blunt tool uh, and that when you're dealing with uh, the vast majority of women offenders, as Kenny has highlighted, a lot of them have terrible social problems, background, maybe victims of sexual abuse, maybe addicted to alcohol, to drugs, and it's a revolving door, Cortonville. But what we are trying to do is with uh, all the various agencies and services in the criminal justice system, is uh, when we receive a, a police report, often the easiest thing to do is to just mark it for prosecution, put it through the court, let the court sentence on conviction. But we actually think that in order to bring the, uh, the rates of crime down further, that the best thing to do is to, before you take a final decision, to put it into court. In fact, to avoid taking such a decision in appropriate cases, it's a good idea to check with social services uh, uh, and various agencies to see if there's something that can be done uh, to help the offender, to prevent re-offending uh, in the future. And we've, We've seen a lot of that, uh, a lot of the benefits of that. Uh, community payback, we're a great supporter of that. Uh, and I think it's delivered great benefits. But if we could just end on a, a story, a true story. When I was a young prosecutor in Greenock many years ago, um, I once saw a, a fabulous sheriff deal with a 16-year-old boy who got himself into trouble. And he'd stolen jewellery from his grandmother. Uh, and this was a real hard Greenock sheriff, you know, battle-hardened. In fact, every time he was uh, on the bench, uh, they always ordered a second bus for Berlini. That gives you a description <laughs> of the type of sheriff that we're dealing with. Anyway, he brought the, the young lad in, and he, he, he called the case first and said, Right, son, I said, you're going to sit throughout this court today and just watch and uh, listen uh, to the sentences I'm about to dish out. And, uh, you know, truth is word, uh, I think there was a third bus that day. But anyway, he then called the young lad at the end of that day's business and he said to him, look, son, you've got a decision to make. You can either follow these people into Berlin or you can make good what you've done to your grandmother and make a contribution to society in something of your life. And he deferred sentence for a year. And that boy came back a year later, had been of good behaviour, had repaid his grandmother, and also given her the money to go on holiday, and also had got himself into university. And he went on to become a doctor, uh, and that was reported back to the sheriff. So I use that uh, as an example just to, to illustrate that, you know, blunt prosecution isn't always the answer to everything. So. I agree with Mary for highlighting the issue and uh, I firmly support Dame Eilish's 
uh, recommendations from a wonderful piece of work. Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Now, we're going to have to take, I think, the last questions, but I'm going to take four, and if we get them briefly, we'll get brief answers, we'll still be on time. So four to come. I'm going to take that gentleman there, I'm going to take that gentleman there, I'm going to take this gentleman here, I'm going to take that lady there. So we'll start with this, this, this gentleman here. Hello, Eric McDonald's uh, brought up in the sky, but uh, now living in Glasgow. Uh, First Minister, with the uh, with independence referendum just over two years away now, uh, most of the debate and discussion has been uh, on a financial uh, aspect with the debate about the, the Barnett formula and how much better off Scotland will be financially. But uh, it would be possible just to hear from each of the, the Cabinet members, just you know, in one or two sentences, why they believe that Scotland would be better off uh, as an independent nation. Okay. That sounds like an ideal final question, I would have said. Um, gentleman here. Yes, First Minister, I'm a barber. Uh, we talk about the economy of this island. Let's talk about the co-op who run an absolute monopoly with four, four stores on this island. And the pricing policy is outrageous. Now, the MSP for this island, Dave Thompson, has taken this up with the Chief Executive Officer of Co-op. And uh, he's replied to him several times. We're still waiting for a reply. Two months down the line, no answer. Despite having said that he will publish the Co-op prices along with those of the mainland. Um, I think it's time we had a little push. I've lost two stone in three months. That's how edible the food is. <laughs> You th you I'm tempted think, to say something about the Sky Diet, but never mind. <laughs> you think I should take up permanent residence in Sky? Yes. Does the government have plans to reassess the value and the need of home reports in Scotland, considering they were abandoned south of the border four or five years ago? Thank you. And final question. Caroline Gold, Broadford. I know I'm not the only person here who has to do this, but I frequently have to travel to Glasgow for surgery or consultations. Why, when I'm told I will get home after three nights, am I then told I will have to stay an additional four or more nights bed blocking and thus having other people's operations cancelled because of the bed blocking? Because Scottish Ambulance Service cannot provide the hospital transport I require in order to get me home with my electric wheelchair. Thank Fine. Okay. Can, I, can I turn your question straight to the Health I, Secretary, Nicola Sturgeon? I would be delighted to speak to you in a bit more detail after uh, this meeting, if that's okay, because there, there can be delays. Um, the Scottish Ambulance Service does a great job. It has been very frank in the last couple of years that it's patient transport services, the aspect of the service it provides that most needs improvement and it's been working hard to deliver those improvements but a delay of four nights seems completely unacceptable and excessive to me so I'd like to take your details and have it looked into if that's uh, okay with you. Home reports uh, Alec, are you reconsidering home reports? N not the principle, we've actually looked at this very carefully and we've undertaken an independent assessment of how well the home reports are working and as a result of that assessment last year we actually have made a number of uh, changes to the way the system is working and we are continually monitoring it and have a very fundamental uh, evaluation of how they're working probably next year. But in principle we believe that the home reports are working well even if you did away with it, the Hope Report has really the two basic elements of it are the valuation and condition survey and the energy performance certificate. 
Under EU legislation, you now need the energy performance certificate anyway. So if you did away with home reports, you'd have to commission that separately. And of course, you need a valuation survey to get it sold. So our view is home reports are now bedding in uh, with the tweaks we've made and the changes we've made to improve it. Uh, we believe now it's delivering the kind of quality provision for both buyers and sellers that it was set up to do. But that's not to say that we won't reform it in the future if need be. Now, Mr Barber's uh, question, since he came to Sky, he's wasting away. Thanks to the co-op, he can't afford three square <laughs> meals a day. Mr Swinney, what are you going to do about the co-op's monopoly in this island? Well, I think this is a, I think it really, raises a really interesting point, because yesterday, um, I wish we were having this meeting yesterday and I was having the phone call I'm about to tell you about uh, tomorrow, but yesterday I was speaking to the chief executive of the co-op group in the United Kingdom because they've just acquired, or they're very likely to acquire, the Lloyds TSB branch network in Scotland as a consequence of the divestment by Lloyds Banking Group of these uh, branches. And, you know, it does raise in my mind the importance of um, the whole ethical dimension in business. And the co-op makes a big thing about the ethical dimension to its business, and that is a point we were discussing yesterday. And it was a point we were discussing yesterday because, you know, I was optimistic and remain optimistic that the co-op will begin to restore some of the ethics to the banking sector that we much need in our society uh, as a consequence of some of the, the really truly shocking revelations that we've had about the conduct by some people within the banking sector in recent years. And my point is, if it's good enough for the co-op to bring ethics to our banking sector, it should be good enough for the co-op to bring ethics to the pricing of food in Sky. And I make that point also in the context of another relevant issue which we've not touched about today, which is about fuel prices. You know, BP or Shell uh, can make their money across the United Kingdom um, based on very, very, very high turnover of product in um, areas like Edinburgh or Glasgow or Dundee or London or wherever it happens to be, but low turnover in the sky and remote areas of the world. And the point of the country, the point I make, is that surely if there's to be any ethic in the fuel pricing business, these companies should be mindful of their responsibility to fragile rural communities about pricing as much as they're prepared to play a competitive game in the cities. So, a bit of business ethic would uh, not go amiss in this area. Now, to be practical about it, um, if we can catch a word afterwards, I'm not familiar with Dave Thompson's involvement in the issue. I'm sure Dave has been assiduously pursuing this, but if you'd like to give me the details in our chat afterwards, um, Mr Barber, uh, I'll personally take that up with the Chief Executive of the Co-op. I think it's a marvellous reply. If we're going to do ethics in banking, you better start doing ethics in Sky. <laughs> it's a great, great line of the Co-op Chief Executive. The, uh, I know it'll be a reverse charge call as well. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, Eric uh, asked us the, the first set of questions for everybody to give a crystallisation of, uh, of why you think independence is a good thing for Scotland. Now, I'll excuse the uh, Lord Advocate because he's a, a government minister, but of course he's independent, above and beyond the field of politics. Incidentally, don't be fooled by that namby-pamby contribution earlier. He's the hard man of Scottish prosecution. <laughs> He'd lock you up as soon as look at you, that man. <laughs> but we'll leave that to, to one side just now, and we're going to start this way around. So, Angela. Thank you, First Minister. 
Essentially, I want to be a grown-up who lives and works in a grown-up country where we take uh, responsibility and make all decisions that affect uh, our children, uh, our elderly parents uh, and our economy. I often say to people that I'm very fortunate. I've got really lovely, uh, fantastic neighbours and we would help each other out in an emergency and when we need to, and that would be reciprocated. But ultimately, at the end of the month, I don't hand them over my salary and ask them to give me some of that salary back and to make some decisions that affect my daily life. So in essence, for me, uh, independence is about responsibility and it's about choices. And I think the gentleman, I think Eric's right, sometimes folk make this sound far more complicated uh, than it actually is. Uh, this is about our future and our day-to-day -day lives, and it's as simple as that. Alec. Can I say right across my portfolio, in every area, water, transport, digital, you heard the First Minister, an example of where we don't have power over the rules, uh, housing, right across the portfolio, I could give you a hundred reasons for wanting independence, even in so-called devolved areas of responsibility. But my bottom line is, and I've been in politics now for quite a long time, even though I've only been an MSP for 12 uh, years, uh, the two things I particularly want to see are very high levels of well-paid employment and the elimination of poverty. You know, we're sitting in a country here that's so rich in resources, particularly in relation to a population. 16% of our pensioners are living below the poverty line. One-fifth of our children are living below the poverty line. And a very high percentage of our disabled community are living below the poverty line. That's neither, in my view, morally acceptable or socially justifiable. And I honestly believe that if we were independent and can manage our own resources uh, in our own way, uh, not only would we get much higher levels of employment amongst younger people and indeed older people, but also we could do what every Scandinavian country has done and effectively eliminate poverty from our society. And that's a prize worth getting. Thank you, Alec. Nicola? Well, like Angela, I just fundamentally believe that decisions tend to be better decisions if they're taken by the people who've got the biggest vested interest in them and that we will tend to use our resources more wisely if we make the decisions about how we use them uh, ourselves. I want to illustrate the general principle, though, with two uh, hard examples from my own areas of responsibility. Uh, I'm responsible within the government right now for dealing with the Scottish implications of the UK welfare reforms. Uh, and what these welfare reforms are going to do, whatever the rhetoric of the UK government might say to the contrary, are penalise some very vulnerable people in Scotland, disabled people uh, in particular. And in Scotland, we are powerless to do much about that. All we can do is try to pick up the pieces as best we can. And the question earlier on about the Citizens Advice Bureau, uh, much of the burden of that is going to fall in these kinds of voluntary organisations. Far better if we can take decisions about the welfare system ourselves to get people into work and to challenge and tackle poverty. And the second example is in health. Health is devolved, but even there, decisions taken elsewhere start to restrict our ability 
to do what we think is best. And England, as the First Minister indicated earlier on, the move is towards the privatisation of the health service. Over the next few years, much more of the income of the health service is going to come from private funding uh, and less, I think, from public funding. And if that happens, uh, and we remain funded as we are, that will hit the money we've got and the money we've got to spend in the health service, so it will restrict our ability to protect our National Health Service. So these are two examples uh, that illustrate that general principle that you're far better to take responsibility for these decisions uh, yourself because by and large, you'll take better decisions as a result. John. First Minister, I'm uh, at the heart of trying to make sure that we can stimulate the Scottish economy just now in the most difficult circumstances that we've faced since uh, the, the end of the Second World War. And I think I agree with the IMF, I agree with the Institute for Public Policy and Research, I agree with numerous other commentators that we need to invest more in capital investment in our country, and I'm doing my level best to achieve that, but what I would like to do, what I think is necessary, I cannot do because the power lies in Westminster. And that's a very practical example of how the aspirations, the prospects, the hopes, the opportunities of people in Scotland are thwarted because we have a government in the UK, a system in the UK that's taking, in my view, fundamentally the wrong course. So it makes the point as to why the decisions would be better placed have uh, been taken here in Scotland by politicians uh, responsive and accountable to the people of this country. And I think anybody uh, looking at the way in which um, responsibility has been exercised in the various areas that governments in Scotland have been responsible for over the last 13 years of devolution, whether it was under the SNP government or under our predecessors, would generally take the view that devolution has been a good thing for Scotland. So the question I pose is if we've made a good job of dealing with health and education and local government and transport and planning within our own jurisdiction, why not take responsibility for the rest? Kenny. Well, I think I agree with my colleagues that it's about I taking, hope so. taking, uh, <laughs> taking pride in who we are, taking responsibility for the challenges that we face both at home and abroad. But I think the important thing is also to recognise that when people say, well, why do you want to divide? So many things now have to be dealt with on a global basis. That's true. To deal with the problems we face in climate change, it has to be addressed on a global basis, which is why there was a meeting in Rio. If we're going to address some of the problems in the European economy, whether Eurozone or beyond, then it has to be dealt with collectively. No nation is entirely independent. But the building block for all these international institutions is the nation state. If you're not a nation state, then you're not represented. That's why in the European Union, North Rhine-Westphalia or Bavaria are not represented, but they're actually bigger than Cyprus or Malta or Estonia or Lithuania or Latvia. They don't get a vote, but those other countries do. In the United Nations, California, for example, is not represented despite being the fifth largest economy in the world, but Micronesian atolls get a vote. If we want to be able to argue in Europe to make sure that there's a social as well as an economic Europe, then we've got to be represented, which means we've got to be a nation state. If we want to be able to hold our heads high and vote in the United Nations to say a war is not in our name, then we've got to be a nation state. So it's not about receding and just being insular. It's about making sure as well as dealing with the challenges that we face here in Scotland, of which there are many, 
it's the opportunity to play our part internationally. And if you want to play your part internationally, then you've got to be a nation state. Stuart, you are the Climate Change Minister and you were in Rio representing Scotland. And uh, First Minister, I was speaking to uh, many nations from around the world and in the last year uh, I've met with ministers now and I was just doing a quick tally of 32 countries uh, because uh, what Scotland is doing is something that people around the world want to hear about. Uh, Scotland, after all, invented much of the modern world. The telephone in 1876, television in the 1920s, uh, the steam engine, the pneumatic tyre, um, the fax machine in the 1840s, radar in the 1930s and 40s, etc., etc. So we are a, a country of innovation, and we're still doing it, by the way, when you have uh, uh, an, eye, uh, uh, an iPad uh, or an iPhone or an iPod, you've actually got Scottish chips uh, inside uh, uh, the, these devices. So we know that we are at least as good as anyone else, and that's what tells us. And my journey started when I read J.D. Mackey's History of Scotland in 1952. Uh, I then went on and read my first political book, which is a biography of Lloyd George in 1954. That got me interested in politics, and I realised politics and power was a way in which you could genuinely make things different for people. And just looking back to my previous ministerial role, let me illustrate some of the frustrations of where we are at the moment. And this is a tiny thing. I previously had the power to redesign a lollipop lady's lollipop, and we needed to do that for technical reasons. But I didn't have the power to redesign the signage on a school bus to save lives of children who were dying in the vicinity of school buses. And isn't that stupid? Isn't that disjoint from what we need to do? And on the big scale of things, can you imagine that we as a country would not respect our military, but we would not imagine that the sacrifices of the brave who serve in our armed forces validate the illegalities of decisions that are made by some of their leaders at the moment? We would be a force for good in the modern world, and I would hope that after 51 years in the SNP and privileged to serve in this government, I, with my colleagues, can play a part in building a new world with Scotland making a new contribution. Yeah, Eric, all my colleagues have pinched all the best lines. And uh, Can I just uh, add this then? Because you touched it in your question. Hey, I've, all my adult life, I've been an economist. Uh, and, uh, and I used to, I mean, I... <laughs> I get, uh, I look at a row of figures and, uh, you know, they're, they're exciting to me, you know, that's uh, it's one of the afflictions that some economists have. But the reason, and I, you know, I believe absolutely with all my heart that, that Scotland would be uh, a prosperous and a just country uh, as an independent country. But the, the reason for Scottish, believing in Scottish independence is not fundamentally about economics. The reason for believing in Scottish independence is about Scotland being a nation. The, the justification for seeking independence is the <coughs> Scotland's nationhood. Uh, that we have something distinctive, valuable, interesting to contribute to the rest of the planet. As was said, I mean, no country is independent in a pure sense. Every country is interdependent one upon the other. Everybody knows that. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to make a distinctive contribution. And that boils down to what is an essential truth that there is nobody, nobody in this planet will make better decisions about Scotland than the people who live in Scotland. Nobody will. Nobody will care more, nobody will want things more, nobody will desire more, nobody will commit more, nobody will sacrifice more than the people who are in this country.
So the essential justification is that essential truth. The people best placed to take decisions about the future of this nation are the people who are here living as part of that nation. Uh, and that's the ultimate argument uh, for Scottish independence. Michael, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, First Minister. We're, we're almost uh, at the end now. Uh, if I can just drop my tuppenceworth in with a final story. When I had Stuart's job as Minister for Environment, I had to attend the fisheries, European Fisheries Council in Luxembourg on one occasion. And um, when the discussion went round the table, they got to the vexed matter of North Sea cod recovery, a matter that affected only Scotland, no other country. The person leading the delegation in Luxembourg was Jeff Rooker, an English member of the House of Lords. By his own admission, he'd never spent much time in the North Sea and no time in Luxembourg at all, and he'd never been to a fisheries council. Nonetheless, he spoke on behalf of Scotland. The Scottish minister was not allowed to speak. But then there was what they call in Europe a, a table round. Every single country got to speak, including the Luxembourg fisheries minister. This is not a full-time job. You, know, you can do quite a lot of other things as well as being Luxembourg fisheries minister. But the Scot Scotland didn't get to say anything at all. And I think if there was a real illustration for me of how things have to change, it was that. Because you can't have things done to you. You've got to do things yourselves. And that is the choice that we now have and fortunately we'll be making in the autumn of 2014. Thank you very much for being part of this. It's been a very lively meeting. It's not quite over yet. <laughs> when we have uh, gone off the stage and got rid of our microphones, we're going to join you upstairs for a, a cup of tea and a sandwich, and we'll have the chance to discuss a whole range of other things. And those ministers who have made promises to take up issues with you individually, buttonhole them and make sure they do. Uh, as for the others, we look forward to having that conversation. But I can, can I thank you very much for being part of this and ask you to thank my colleagues in the Cabinet and particularly the First Minister.